Hello and welcome back to The Garden Podcast. I'm Chris Young, editor of The Garden magazine. Today, I'm behind the scenes at the RHS Flower Show in Cardiff. One of the perks of being the editor is getting the chance to enjoy the wonderful and varied flower shows the RHS puts on throughout the year. If you haven't been to the Cardiff Flower Show before, it's a great little show. It's in the centre of the city. It's really easy to get to. You can walk around it in a few hours. And of course, there's a bonus of loads of plants, flowers, sundries, lots of things to buy and some beautiful gardens to look at. You can find details of upcoming shows in the RHS Life pages of the magazine and on our website. And stay tuned, as later in the podcast, we're giving you the chance to win tickets to this year's Chatsworth Flower Show in the Peak District, which takes place in June. Each month in this podcast, I talk to people involved in creating our RHS monthly magazine and explore some of the stories behind the stories in its glossy pages. One of the most eye-catching features in May's edition is Noel Kingsbury's article all about Wildside Garden in Devon. The photographs are so vivid, they, they literally glow and excite you from the page. Wildside is a creation of plantsman Keith Wiley. Keith uses an intensive palette of plants over a landscape he sculpted himself to fit his innovative horticultural vision. April's an incredibly busy time for Keith, so we couldn't coax him into the podcast studio, but I managed to speak to him on the phone. Keith, we have a spectacular seven-page feature all about your garden. It's been written by Noel Kingsbury and photographed by Richard Bloom. It really looks and reads spectacularly. For people who don't know about you, give us an idea about your background and, and where you've been and what you've been doing. Well, I, I was at the, the head gardener at uh, the garden house at Buckland Monocorum down in South Devon for 25 years. And we left about 14 years ago now and started on a Bearfield site just down the road which was daunting a little bit, but it's the sort of things that I'd been doing at the garden house before, so it was more exciting than daunting, I think. What made you leave and made you start something brand new? Because it was a barren site you went to, wasn't it? I was uh, 50, and I thought if I don't move now, I never will. I'd been there for 25 <laughs> years, the garden house, so we developed a style of gardening that was loosely called uh, naturalistic. I mean, it takes its inspiration from wild, not a copy of anything in the wild, but it's about communities of plants. And I saw down the road that we had a potential site that would be really good for it. It had sort of panoramic 360-degree views from the top of the slope. And I knew that we'd be able to sort of get this sort of planting I liked, but with a wonderful background of the Devon Hills all the way around. So it was fun, but it's taken quite a long time to get there. And I think if anyone, um, when the people see the photographs, and, and sadly I haven't ever visited you there, but if you see the photographs, you see this is a spectacular example of planting design, of sort of environmental awareness, of naturalistically inspired planting communities. But we know it's more complicated than that. We know you've been on a digger, you've been making these mounds and these valleys and these canyons. Did you set out with a clear plan, or were you really really sort of scratching around and finding out the lie of the land and you kind of learnt by doing? I've done some of this before, Chris, up at the garden house, but you can't really plan it on paper because once you start digging into the ground, you're never certain whether you're going to hit bedrock just down under the surface. And part of the reason that I've gone 
as deep as we have and gone as high as we have is because the underlining soil, well, it's stones, really. It's what we call shillet. It's broken up slate. Just didn't seem to be an end to it. So I could carry on digging. I mean, we stripped the soil off the whole four-acre site and then piled that up, saved it on one side, and then over the intervening years shaped the underlying shillet. We created banks, some of the banks are 40 feet high, and some of the valleys are correspondingly deep. And some of the banks are only sort of two feet deep. Down in South Devon here, we did a lot of rainfall. And I found early on at the garden house that if I gave plants drainage, they could cope with this high rainfall. So even if the bank is only one foot high, it's still enough to mean that the plants aren't standing in water in the winter. And that was a really key issue. The other thing about it, of course, is that by having banks, you bring the flowers up closer to your face. Uh, the paths are just sort of running in the valleys and you're, you are completely surrounded by this sort of mesmerizing display of flowers and foliage. It seems to me now that gardening on the flat just seems so dull. You know, I, I want to grow everything on banks. Keith, can you explain the range of plants in the plant communities that you grow? Because you really have seemed to use everything that the plant world offers, from bulbs to trees to shrubs to grasses. And from looking at the photography, it just seems there's such a mass and a variety of different plants. Well, I would say I'm a generalist plantsman. I like all plants, really. And when you see things growing in the wild, again, you realise that all plants, given the right setting, are beautiful. And it's about the community of plants. I think for so long in our gardening history, if you like, we've been concerned with just the individual plant, the flower. It's almost the sort of Blackmore and Langdon delphiniums at Chelsea. They are fantastic. Don't get me wrong. 12 foot high delphiniums are superb. But you go out to the Rockies in North America and you see species delphiniums and they're only four foot high. But they're growing in a community of plants and they're just as beautiful. It's just it takes a different sort of appreciation of what beauty is. And what we have done is just try to make plants look like they are part of a natural community. I make a piece of ground, a sort of shape, a a landscape, and then think what plants, where have I seen things in the wild that it reminded me of? And then you sort of make a different version of that that corresponds to it. So when you're in South Africa, I saw agapanthus growing on the side of the Drakensberg Mountains. They're not growing in a border with lots of other plants. They're growing amongst grass on the side of the hills. They're the dominant species. And when you then put agapanthus and you make them the dominant species, not cram them in with other things, you sort of plant them with grass, you transform them. You make them look like they are in the wild. And that is so exciting when you do it. Do you think in relation to reading the landscape or understanding it or even interpreting it, you do have to have the body of knowledge and experience that somebody like you has? Because if you don't have that experience or that confidence or that ability to try, then actually it's a challenge to make that leap between what you see or you experience in the wild and reinterpret that into a garden. Yes, I agree with you. I mean, it's it is based on sound horticultural knowledge. I mean, I absorbed all the books from a very young age as much as I could. 
and then you start to learn from your own particular conditions. I am not saying what I do down here is exactly relevant to East Anglia or the drier parts of the country. It's rooted in the Devon landscape and a wet climate. There are so many different wild landscapes out there. If we started to interpret them and look at them and go beyond just the visual effect of what there is, then that will be really good. When I see pictures of flowers on television sometimes, I'm dying to know what are they actually growing in. I'm dying for the sort of camera to pull back and show you where they're growing. We're so preoccupied with one flower against another. Whereas you see these flowers, I've seen film of South Africa. What you don't see is what they're growing in. They're growing in absolute stone. You know, we're so pre-programmed that we should pump organic matter into our soil that we forget that many of the best flowers in the world grow on incredibly poor stony soils. I'm not saying it's all plants. It does depend on some knowledge, and I'm not saying it's for everybody, but you can have an awful lot of fun trying. Keith, the garden is available for people to visit, isn't it? And also you're, you're running a nursery at the same time. Well, yes, it's just the two of us. It's just my wife and myself. So we, we are gradually running down the nursery, actually, so that we can concentrate on the garden. Garden's reached a point where its potential is sort of waiting to be delivered and we'd like to do that we only open the garden for a few days each year because when the public are coming in we don't do any work it's a private garden it was never intended chris as a public garden this concept of making a garden here it was never about making another public garden another garden house mark two i did it because i genuinely love to see as many different plants as i can growing in as naturalistic way as we can. So it wasn't about ever setting up a commercial garden as such. It is a, just a private garden. And we're just happy to share it with people on times of the year when it's looking particularly spectacular. Keith Wiley from his garden in Devon. You can read Noel Kingsbury's article and see the stunning photos in the May edition of The Garden. If you're an RHS member this free magazine will be arriving in a couple of days and if you're not then you should be all the details are on the RHS website Before I came to Cardiff a couple of days ago I was just putting the latest issue to bed and as ever I hope there's plenty to interest everybody The May issue of The Garden is actually the biggest issue of the year, so there should be something for everybody in it. Whether you enjoy growing courgettes, we've got an article about how to grow them vertically. Roy Lancaster visits Bowood House and Gardens in Wiltshire. We've got a great piece on Clematis Montana, a garden in Edinburgh, a piece all about the Gully Garden at Rosemore, our garden in Devon, and information about Chatsworth Flower Show. One item that caught my plant lover's eye was a feature on the new Wisteria RHS monograph, which is a book being published this spring. Like many gardeners, I adore Wisteria, and I'm always impressed with the ways a Wisley Garden team displays this most abundant of spring flowers. I spoke to curator Matthew Pottage about how he plans to celebrate this versatile plant even further in the new Wisley Wisteria Walk.
Matt, you've written the foreword to our monograph, which itself has been written by James Compton and Chris Lane. Can you explain what this book is, what it looks like, and why you were so happy to write the introductory text? Yeah, of course. I mean, this for me is like the the go-to book now. It'll be the one-stop shop for everything you need to know about Wisteria. It's a really beautiful, quite glamorous, I think, catalogue of beautiful imagery, really relevant and accurate descriptions, a really good place to look at names. There's so many synonyms and confused names in Wisteria, so it's a really useful place to just check exactly what you're growing. And there's a lovely overview. The book opens with the history of Wisterias, them growing in their native countries, how they've come into cultivation, and a bit about their, their history in UK gardens, which is really lovely. And then for just really useful, good-to-know things that I'm sure every gardener is going to want to know, Things like uh, there's a a couple of pages on blues, pinks, purples, whites, white and mauve flowers and a list of the cultivars. And then good cultivars for walls, pergolas, arches, good to grow as standards, as shrubs, and then uh, a final section on good cultivars to grow through trees. And I think, you know, any gardener that's listening to this, that's thinking of uh, investing in a wisteria, they're the kind of things you want to look at because you maybe don't want what everyone else grows, or maybe you do, or maybe you want something a really good white, or maybe you don't have any pink wisterias. So I just think it's incredibly helpful for just the interested gardener to someone making a, an informed choice about what to plant. And like I say, it is really like this one-stop shop for me of, of go-to on things, anything really wisteria related. In your foreword, you write it so eloquently, as we would expect from you, Matthew. But um, there was a couple of lines that really uh, worked so well for me and, and just sort of summed up the beauty of this plant. You say, planting wisteria is the start of a lifelong adventure, one that can be fast-paced, vibrant and filled with memorable moments. And you conclude by saying, this book is an excellent instruction to everyone that wisteria is so much more diverse than a purple-flowered climber. So I take it from that you love these plants and you've grown quite a few over the years? How did you guess? I know, it must be, I must because I know you, who knows? Oh, I know, I give everything away. Yeah, they are such a... A special plant to me. It's a plant that I have always noticed growing in other people's gardens growing up. I've always envied them. You normally see them on beautiful country houses or large mm. houses. And I think, you know, when I moved down to Surrey, you know, some, I don't know, 14 years ago now, I was really bowled over with just how beautiful they are in, generally in the south of England. It doesn't need to be just the south of England, but they seem to be very uh, popular and if you go to areas uh, you know like around Richmond and Ham in you know April early May time so many beautiful old houses decorated with wisteria and then my time at Wisley uh, when I talk about those memorable moments and the life kind of lifetime adventure uh, there's there's plants here which they've not been in the ground forever you know they are quick growing vigorous plants and there's some in Oakwood at Wisley, which are probably, you know, 20, 30 years old. They look like they've been there about 300 years. They're up <laughs> in the treetops, you know, they're, they're absolutely immense. And equally on Battleston Hill, where there's an area growing through birch. And those memorable moments are where, in my case, I'm normally running from meeting to meeting at Wisley, going from the glass house over to the laboratory or somewhere else. And you suddenly look up and the wisteria is just doing its thing. And, you know, there's this... A whole canopy is draped on an oak tree with purple. And it's the same with all through the birch on Battleston Hill. And then you have a moment when calm day and there's a bit of warmth in the sunshine or the wind's blowing in the direction where you're walking and you hit the scent. 
you know, we have all of that now at Wisley and the, the collection here is quite vast. So Matthew, you clearly love this plant. Have you got any favourites that you can share with us, whether cultivars or AGMs? Yeah, of course. The straight species, just Wisteria floribunda, Wisteria sinensis, are incredibly garden-worthy and very, very showy. But if I had to choose a favourite, it'd be one of the uh, the rich, purpley-blue, scented, long-raceme cultivars. One I've known for years called Royal Purple, and I think you'll find it around in the trade a lot as Royal Purple. The book, which clears up a lot of naming confusion, refers to this as Kokiuru. Like I say, it's a very good scented dark purple one. It flowers very profusely here. And it would be a great garden plant for a sunny wall or, you know, training up uh, a large tree. But also one that's maybe slightly more different is a bit of a two-tone one. It's a white flower with a mauvish kind of uh, blue eye, blue centre to it, called kimono. From a distance, it has a bit of a a silvery white thing going on. But when you look closely, it's very clearly a two-tone. You don't see that so much, but I think it should be deservedly more popular. And then I think as a bit more of an unusual plantsman's choice, which is good on a smaller wall in in a good sunny spot because it enjoys the heat, is one of the American species, Wisteria uh, frutescens longwood purple. It doesn't have the same vigour as some of the uh, Chinese-Japanese species. And it is so, so pretty. Uh, A delicate scent to it, not much. But when uh, the one in the wall garden, East Flowers at Wisley, it always has a lot of attention. So I do think it's important to throw out there that, you know, if you don't have towering trees or huge walls or you don't live in a Georgian mansion, wisterias can still be for you on a much smaller scale with some of those American uh, species. The pruning of wisterias is often a big issue for people, isn't it? People can be quite put off by growing a wisteria up their house because they might think it get into their guttering or into their attic or smother a window with lots of uh, leafy growth in the summer. And for many years, uh, both the RHS and lots of different gardeners have been proposing a, a, a twice-a-year cut, one in July and August and then a second in January and February. But there's quite a few people who are really proposing now that we just do a single cut each year. And one of the authors of the uh, monograph Chris Lane is a great proponent of this. How do you prune the wisterias at Wisley? And have you been trying this annual cut compared to the twice yearly cut? So, yeah, it's a really interesting concept. Some of our wisterias are only actually cut once a year, simply because they're in such inaccessible positions. It's quite an event getting to them. And And when would that be? So we actually end up doing that in winter. And I think it is the winter prune that's really essential to my mind. And the, the style of pruning that Chris, the author of the book, refers to is very late summer. Essentially, you you do that winter prune, but there's still obviously some leaf on the plant. Uh, We all know the old theory, I'm sure, of removing all those long extension shoots in late summer, what we call the searcher shoots, and they're taken back to, you know, five or six leaves within about 30 centimetres of older wood. But then it is that winter prune which is really important. So you're taking things back to just a couple of buds. You're leaving a stub two and a half centimetres, five centimetres, something like that, just to extend that flowering spur. And if you're doing it right at the end of summer, if you're just going to try and do it once, if you do it right at the end of summer, then chances are when you've made that cut, it's not going to regrow. So you're left with that final flower spur formation. I guess the downside of it is if if it's alongside a path that you're walking along, you've got to cope with the the shoots, those long searcher shoots sticking out, Mm. waving around all through the summer. And 
on our water lily pavilion at Wisley at the end of the canal where we do have wisteria it does just that it gets in the way and it's horrible it's all in your face and you're walking past it but I you know I, I think if we you know can talk honestly about just being a bit more sensible I think that summer prune is it is less essential it's to a certain amount of buds because in the winter time you're going to take it back further anyway so you know if you took a pair of shears just over it in the summertime to take back those shoots that would be fine it's really about that final cut you make to the flower spur so if you do it at the end of summer like chris great if you end up with a bit of a, a late bit of heat in the autumn which sometimes we do you can get a bit of regrowth which you don't want so it really is when the plant has stopped actively growing to make those final cuts or you just do it in the winter when it's dormant and one thing the book does touch on, I think some article in the Garden magazine has mentioned before perhaps, and, and Chris will speak of this from his own national collection, when a wisteria is to the top of its support, so if you're growing it on a pillar or if you're growing it up a tree, hmm. you see them up trees and they still flower really well. And if people think, you know, well, why is it flowering? No one's pruning it up there. Plants are intelligent and the science behind this is the wisteria knows when it can't climb any higher, when those searcher shoots can't go up anything more, when they're at the, you know, the top of the tree or the top of a pillar, they're going to go out horizontally and then it will spend its energy making flower buds. There's no further for it to climb, there's no bonus to add any more search and growth. And if you look at a wisteria that's up a tree, all those long sprawly growths that come out of it, they all form flower buds. So that is kind of why it is a really good idea to grow them up pillars as freestanding plants because once they've finished climbing or you know they can't get any higher they make enormous amounts of flower buds and uh, Chris's national collection is a great example of that. So just in conclusion what's your your hope that people um, will get from reading this book or considering growing wisteria? Well, I would hope that, well, first of all, maybe if they've been scared of wisteria and they think they're a difficult plant because of their pruning or they think they're a nightmare to get them flowering or maybe they just think they're not for them because they don't have the space, I hope those will be ruled out because, like I say, this is a really educational, good book for a gardener. And, and maybe if people just think they're an experienced plants person and they think there's not a lot in wisteria other than the purple-flowered typical one you see around a lot that they might think again and think you know actually I'm going to surprise my gardening friends when they next come over with a lovely pink wisteria trained on a pillar or something it will really get people to think twice about them and there is there is quite a few out there so it's really worth a look and like I said this book is a, is a beautiful collection of them. Matthew Pottage curator of RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey more on wisteria of course in this edition of the magazine. If you'd like any advice about any aspect of caring for wisteria, or indeed any garden plant, why not contact our members' advisory service? As we mentioned in our last podcast, the RHS Gardening Advice Service is moving into a more accessible online format. Advisor Jenny Bowden explains how this new improved service will work and how it'll benefit gardeners. So we're not using email in quite the same way as we were before. We have now got an online form, which you find by... You can use Google and just put in RHS Garden Advice, or you can go to rhs.org.uk forward slash my advice. Once you've got to our gardening advice homepage, scroll down a little bit, it will say, ask the team a gardening question. There's a red banner below it saying, ask your gardening question. Just hit that and you're in. 
if you haven't already registered, you'll need to create yourself a registration, which is very, very easy to do. You just put your email address, you create a password for yourself, you'll need your membership number, and then you'll be in. We've had a members area for some time, so you may find that you are already registered. So it's exactly the same as your normal login. So once you've registered, you're ready to ask your question. Each time you go in, you will need to have your password on you. And once you're in, you will be asked, what is your question about? And it's all very, very easy. You've literally got four pictures to identify a plant. It might be a pest you're concerned about, a disease or something else if you're not quite sure. Don't worry if you're not entirely sure what it is because we'll, we'll know and we'll be able to send it to the right person to answer your question. And then we'll ask you, what plant does it affect? And if you do know the name of the plant, that would be very, very helpful. If you don't know the name, it's no problem at all. As long as we've got the symptoms and we've got a good sample, that is all we need. Talking of the samples, photography, we're very, very happy to have photographs and it's very easy to attach photographs and it doesn't matter on the size. If you're not very adept at getting them into into small file sizes, it doesn't matter. Uh, We'll be asking where the plant is growing, indoors, outdoors, etc., or whether it's uh, in a container outdoors, and whether you've used any fertilisers, weed killers or pesticides. And really, that is all there is to it. So we answer the questions usually within 10 working days, but usually it's an awful lot less than that. We're pretty efficient. Depends slightly on the time of year. Uh, Obviously, in the summer, it gets busier, but you'll have your answer fairly swiftly. And you'll get an email in your inbox telling you that you have your answer. To pick up your answer, you'll need to log in and collect your answer. And the really good thing about this new service is that you've got all your previous answers as well. So you can go back and see what happened when and what we said about it, whatever your problem was. And finally, competition time. To celebrate the return this June of the RHS Chatsworth Flower Show, we are giving away a pair of VIP tickets. The prize includes a three-course lunch at the White Peak Restaurant and a meet-and-greet with Wedgwood garden designer Jamie Butterworth. You will also win a luxury Sunday night escape at Chatsworth Estates Cavendish Hotel, which includes dinner and a champagne cream tea on arrival. To enter the competition, all you have to do is go to rhs.org.uk forward slash Chatsworth Comp and answer the question for a chance to win. The competition runs until the 26th of April. Well, that's all we've got time for in today's edition of The Garden Podcast. We'll be back next month with plenty of treats about how we put the magazine together and some of the highlights. Until then, from me, Chris Young, and all here at the glorious RHS Flower Show at Cardiff, goodbye. Goodbye.